Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Irish Times Business Podcast in association with Irish Life. Supporting companies and their employees for 75 years. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week we're looking at the business of sport and I'm joined as always by co-host Michael O'Keefe of Teneo PSG. Michael, you're welcome to the studio. Kieran, thank you as always. Now, later in the show, you'll hear Mick and I interview Ray Wilson, the major shareholder behind Shamrock Rovers. Ray lives in Australia, but he was home for the Hoops European tie against AIK Stockholm in Tala. And we discussed his plans to create a Shamrock Rovers Academy backed by a one and a half million euro investment from down under. But first, we're going to start, as always, with our roundup of the main business of sport news stories. And Michael, you're going to take us, first of all, to Nike and the World Cup. Yes, so Nike's uh, financial results were out from millions to billions. Um, it's a really competitive space here that Nike operate in. And, you know, it's one of these brands that's lasted the test of time um, in a very competitive landscape there with Adidas. Under Armour have been a big emerging player in this space. Puma, New Balance, just to name but a few. So the global uh, sports apparel market is worth in the region of $175 billion um, and is growing rapidly year on year. They reckon it'll be up 25% mm. in the last five years. So it is a very very lucrative, big industry. And what's the World Cup connection? Well, the World Cup connection is, you know, you, and you read these things in advance and post. Adidas, obviously, were the World Cup official Yeah, they partner. had the match ball, didn't they? The match ball and the, the official partner of, of, of the World Cup. But Nike, you know, I suppose from a soccer perspective in this World Cup, won hands down. They obviously had the two finalists um, and the two star players as well. So they have this huge deal with France, which I think is worth about 50 million per annum. Um, and then uh, they have a deal with Croatia as well. Um, but they're two of the star players, Kylian Mbappe, uh, who obviously had a superb tournament and a, and a great final and, and Luka Modric player of the tournament are both Nike players as well so pretty good tournament for them and as we all know um, the, the kids watch sport on TV these are the global superstars and that's who they, that's who they follow with Nike have a, a reputation for picking um, these global superstars obviously long long standing relationship with the likes of Tiger Woods Rory McIlroy etc Yeah come on Mick where do you stand uh, Nike or Adidas? Oh jeez, you can't be asking me those questions. I was always an Adidas man, I have to say, like the old three stripes. (laughs) (laughs) Although I do wear Puma Kings. (laughs) Right, okay. And Under Armour. New Balance Runners sometimes. Nike's a great brand. 
We're going to we're going to stick with football. And uh, Cristiano Ronaldo has made his move, his hundred million pound or euro move to Juventus from Real Madrid. I'm not sure if he's a, a Nike or Adidas man or or elsewhere, but. This coincided with a Fiat strike, and of course Juventus uh, closely linked with <clears throat> Fiat uh, down through the years. Yeah, they're, they're not quite a, a factory-owned club like you get in, in Germany, but they are like absolutely hand-in-glove with the Agnelli family uh, and Fiat, and you know they're more or less a, a, a factory team or a company team. If you've ever been to Turin, it's a it's a Fiat town. Um, Cristiano Ronaldo, obviously a truly global superstar, brilliant career with Madrid, previously Manchester United, and he's gone for absolutely mega bucks, um, you know, 100 million deal a lot of it would be going straight into his back pocket um, I think Madrid were you know, not happy enough to let him go but I think it was an amicable parting of the, of the ways but um, you know not everybody um, is is happy with the deal even though uh, you know there's reports that it was 50 millions worth of jerseys or something sold in the first 48 hours and Madrid, Juventus been a, a kind of a team that has support all over Italy as, as, as most listeners would, would, would know but um, not everyone in Fiat was was happy the, the USB union which is uh, the, the union that represents a lot of the Fiat workers uh, very unhappy that this investment was going into a footballer and not into the into the factory itself and they called a strike um, and actually only five people turned up right, okay. <laughs> so, so it just shows you that when it comes to their sport I think and was the factory uh, actually closed? well they, 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 they the union called a strike but um, you know 1,700 workers uh, worked on the first shift apparently so the, the factory didn't actually it close had no impact. yeah so it absolutely zero impact uh, right. and uh, a resounding flop is what it was called so hopefully Ronaldo isn't a resounding flop either right and uh, I mean is Ronaldo going to be driving Fiat cars as a result of his move to Italy? Yeah, I think they're, are they the same family as Lamborghini? I'm not too sure he might be <laughs> might be upgrading. Now, close to the home, some good news for the IRFU. They released their financial statement for the 2017-2018 season showing a profit and showing uh, unexpected positive revenues as a result of success on the field. Yeah, and I, I think you can directly link um, the, the financial success to the successes um, on, on the pitch here. So the financial year for the IRFU um, we've had Philip Brown on here um, it ends on the May, May 31st so it's very much aligned with the season so um, it just goes to show you that um, you know the success on the pitch absolutely translates into, into financial success Ireland obviously had uh, a very successful Six Nations campaign and the the provinces had a very successful campaign too they have a very healthy sponsorship and commercial budget which was up 7% year on year so their overall revenues have grown by 9 million which is very significant when they have a budget of 85.7 million and this factors in um, uh, as well the heavy investment that was made in the women's um, Rugby World Cup of which the RFU have budgeted a 4 million deficit for hosting that particular tournament so um, very good news for the RFU. Obviously, um, you know, the year that's been with the uh, unsuccessful 23 bid, which would have been fantastic for our sport. But, you know, the other thing to bear in mind here, Kieran, is that um, rugby is a very expensive sport to run because the costs associated with the national team are very high. Um, you know, 42 million goes into running the, the provinces and the national team and uh, you know it was well reported in, in, in the Irish Times as well mm. that 1.5 million was spent on players bonuses and that kind of thing so um, rugby professional sport is an expensive uh, place to play there aren't massive margins in it but you know, obviously with the success and the, 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 the finances and the TV deals and all that kind of stuff that comes but with Mickey, it so. Some listeners and female listeners in particular might wonder well if revenues were up 9 million yeah. and a, a lot of that was unexpected uh, and they made a profit of uh, 1.2 million or a yeah. surplus uh, as I think they like to call it 
Why wasn't the Women's Tour to Australia given the go-ahead? My understanding on that is that, um, you know, there has been a lot of investment in, in, in women's rugby. I think um, this was seen as a, a slightly cynical play by the Australians who were looking for a warm-up match before they went into their equivalent of the of the uh, Tri-Nations, which obviously they play um, New Zealand and, and South Africa as well. They're completely out of season and the budget, the, the budget and the focus was on getting the team ready for their season which is an autumn season and a and a, and a spring season um, and the players weren't even in training so it didn't make sense from a playing perspective I think uh, perhaps the IRFU should have got out ahead of that story and explained it, that the, the, they had been approached by Australia as opposed to kind of dripped out and uh, you know uh, but I, I think when you actually look into it the reasons were playing reasons not financial reasons Yeah and of course there was huge disappointment at the fact that we lost out in terms of our Rugby World Cup bid Yeah well look there is and, and, and look I, 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 I think the RFU will look at this again and see is there an opportune time to go again um, massive disappointment um, infrastructure was pinpointed as the, the, the reason you would think maybe slightly unfairly um, how we scored the really? same as South Africa and France on security is Leinster still, still don't uh, have a refurbished home Connacht's uh, badly in need of a refurbished they home they had marked down Parky Cueve as well which is actually which was ready by the time of the bid which they had they had marked against it um, and infrastructure wise I think I think Ireland I think we would have held a fantastic World Cup um, I think uh, a small nation there would have been a great party atmosphere there I, I hope we go with it again Maybe. No planning for Casement Park in Belfast in place? No, no Probably unlikely, well, we, actually, I, on the I, scale that they were looking at. I think we um, put something like 13 stadias, stadia in, of which I think you need nine or ten. So there was a long list. Mikhail Park was in there, uh, and a couple of others were in there that may not have seen games. Um, but I think there's enough stadia there and enough pipeline to build. I think it probably, I think one of the big losers out of this was actually the GA, and we spoke to Paddy Duffy about this, where um, the GA had kind of hoped that the IRV would win the bid because it was a big 10 million upgrade of a lot of GA stadia to bring them up to standard, um, which would have been great for the GA as well. So I hope it's not gone. Do we have to go with somebody else again? Again, I think there was analysis in the Irish Times around, you know, are we left in a situation where you have to be either a, a superpower or one of these emerging nation, emerging yeah. nation and you can't know when in the middle is going to get a chance to, to host it, you know? OK, Mick, uh, thanks for that roundup. We're going to take a short break now. When we return, we'll be talking football and Shamrock Rovers with Ray Wilson. Back in a few moments. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. Welcome back to this Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. You can subscribe to this podcast for free on iTunes and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. Now, like most League of Ireland clubs, Shamrock Rovers has experienced financial difficulties over the years. However, two years ago, Australia-based businessman Ray Wilson invested one and a half million into the club in the shape of an interest-free loan, which has had a significant impact on the club's fortunes. Now, last week, Mick and I spoke to Ray Wilson, who was in town for the Hoops European tie against AIK Stockholm. And we spoke to him about his plans for the Shamrock Rovers Academy near the club stadium in Tala. Now, Ray, you're very welcome. Uh, I know you're, uh, you're, uh, you're not long into Dublin. You've been doing a, a little bit of a, a European tour uh, on your way here uh, from Sydney. Just tell us a little bit about the background to all of this, because obviously Shamrock Rovers is based in Tala, uh, southwest Dublin. You're based in Sydney. Uh, by my estimation, that's over ten thousand miles. Uh, how does how does somebody based in in Tala uh, become a, a a fan of Shamrock Rovers and one of the major investors? 
Uh, yes, uh, well, thanks uh, for the invite, Kieran. It's great to be here. Uh, well, yeah, look, I live in Sydney. I've been there since uh, 1986, so quite a while. Uh, but I'm a Dubliner born and bred. Uh, grew up here in, in Dublin, uh, a Liberties boy. Uh, uh, grew up in Rialto, uh, moved to Temple Oak in my early teens. Uh, and from probably the day I was born, I was born into a Rovers family. My father, Jack, who passed away a few years back now, uh, was a lifelong fan indeed. His, his father was as well, my grandfather. So the family connection probably goes back to the uh, late 20s, 1930s, I think. Um, and I, as I say, uh, was a fan, um, went to Milltown, was brought by Jack uh, from a very young age, uh, hardly missed the game. I don't think we missed very many games over the years. Uh, and even though I emigrated to Sydney, the, the love for Rovers and the passion uh, has always been there. So uh, got involved, probably actively involved when the club went into administration. Uh, my father was on the board then and uh, uh, the club obviously suffered some financial difficulties. Uh, and the fans sort of dug in, um, formed the members group and uh, myself and the fans took the club out of administration back in 2005 and I've been you know, actively involved ever since. Yeah, and of course the club left Milltown in 1987, which was sort of the beginning of that journey towards, I think it was examinership actually, um, that the club slipped into uh, and it got relegated to the first division out of the Premier Division, which was a bit, uh, I'm a Shermock Rovers fan, I've got to declare that to the <laughs> listeners, it was a bit humiliating for us as fans, but uh, nonetheless we bounced straight back. Uh, and things have been on an upward curve since then. And in the last couple of years, um, you and uh, I think your business partner in Australia, Seamus Dawes, have put some significant money behind the club yeah. in a bid to establish an academy here for Shamrock Rovers, uh, which is based out in the Rosestone facility um, and uh, near Talla. And the plan is to try and bring through a production line of, of uh, young, the, the best young players in the area and to give them an opportunity to learn their football at home rather than having to go to England to learn their trade. Indeed, Kieran. Yes, look, that's the plan. And uh, myself and the board got together about two and a half years ago and basically mapped out a bit of a strategy for the club. Uh, you know, we decided we uh, we needed to uh, invest in a, in a youth academy. Uh, and bring young boys through playing for the club as a, at, at a young age, uh, rather than the sort of merry-go-round of League of Ireland players, you know, playing for half a dozen clubs probably in their career and, you know, moving from team to team after a season or two. Uh, we decided that, um, you know, there was a good reservoir of talent here in Dublin uh, that we could tap into. Uh, in fairness to the FAI, they uh, introduced a national uh, underage league, so we We've had the under-19s and under-17s for a couple of seasons now and the under-15s has just kicked off as well. So we saw a sort of pathway there that, um, you know, young young lads could uh, learn their football and be well-coached with good technical coaches, which we've invested in as well. Including Damien Duff. Including Damien Duff. And, uh, you know, Damien's uh, very, very high profile, obviously, and uh, <clears throat> just a, uh, a fantastic uh, opportunity for kids to learn from um, a fellow who did it all in the game. But there's also fellas there like Aidan Price and Stephen Rice and uh, and a host of others. Mm. Hardened, uh, hardened League of Ireland uh, professionals and both with a, a background with Shamrock Rovers. How much has been invested uh, to date, Ray? Well, the the, the, the uh, agreement with the fans was that myself and Seamus would invest uh, one and a half million euros uh, over a number of years. Uh, and we would do that on a, on a 10 year sort of basis. So, you know, the idea is that uh, it's a long-term plan. Um, you know, we probably don't expect to see a return for uh, for a number of years, but we are kind of convinced that uh, investing in the talent, keeping young lads here in Ireland, uh, we have a, a program where we send uh, kids who are with our first team to Ashfield College so they can train with the first team uh, and do their studies later in the uh, in the day. Um, 
So we, you know, we think that that's a better alternative for young boys than going over to England at 14 and 15. Uh, you know, a very, very high percentage end up coming home like it's in the 90-odd percent, come back after two or three years. Many of them don't play football ever again, fall out of love with the game. You know, we think that, uh, you know, if you're good enough, um, you'll be seen in the League of Ireland. And we've seen that now with uh, the likes of Graham Burke, who came back uh, two rovers after a number of years in England, um, was actually looking for a taxi licence, I think, when he came back only 18 months ago, rehabilitated his career here with Shamrock Rovers. Uh, great credit to our football department, uh, Stephen Bradley, Stephen McPhail and others to, um, you know, get Graham back on track, basically. Uh, and now he's back over in England, you know, with a uh, very good championship club in Preston. Yeah, and of course he got capped by uh, by the Republic of Ireland, by Martin O'Neill in, in recent friendlies. How much did Rovers make from that deal, Ray? Um, we uh, we sold Graham, I think it was widely reported, for €300,000. Probably worth more, but, uh, you know, it, it was a reasonable offer. Uh, and there's a good sell-on clause in there as well for us. So if, if Graham does uh, kick on beyond uh, Preston, uh, there's something in it for the club as well, you know. Ray, just from uh, for, for for listeners, can you explain who owns Shamrock Rovers and kind of the organisational structure from a from a company perspective? Yeah, sure. Uh, look, the shareholding. There's basically two shareholders. Um, myself, I hold fifty percent uh, interest in the club, uh, and the members club holds the other fifty percent. Um, that was basically the deal when um, we took the club out of examinership back in two thousand and five. Uh, as the members continued to invest in the club beyond two thousand and five. I was actually diluted down to about 10% over that intervening sort of 10 or 11 years. Uh, but with the uh, additional investment that myself and Seamus put in, um, you know, a year or two years ago, uh, my stake's gone back up to 50% and will remain at that level until such time as uh, the funds are repaid, um, hopefully, you know, over the next 10 years or so. And in terms of the company structure, in terms of full-time chief executive, full-time admin staff... Yeah, yeah. Look, uh, yeah, we have a full-time CEO, Brendan Murray, who came on two years ago and has done a terrific job in uh, commercialising a lot of our activities. Uh, Siobhan Keane, uh, who spent many years with the FEI, is, uh, works with us as well as our COO. Uh, and there are a number of other administration staff in the um, you know account side, marketing side. Uh, there's obviously a big full-time contingent amongst the football department. Uh, and I should also men- mention we have a... Uh, you know, a very active and hardworking volunteer board uh, headed up by Jonathan, uh, Jonathan Roach, our chairman, um, uh, Mark Lynch, James Nolan, um, Stephen Gleeson, John Ryan and others, you know, who all do a phenomenal amount of work. I actually don't know where, where these fellas get the time to do all of that as well as their day jobs as well. But there's a, you know, there's a huge volunteer sort of ethos around the club as well as a full-time professional outfit as well. And just, you know, there's there's always been this kind of um, perception of the League of Ireland and there's a bit of a boom-bust thing and people come in and spend money and then clubs go bust and clubs can't pay salaries. You know, you have at the moment um, US investment in Dundalk, you've this Saudi Arabian investment in Galway, Cork seem to be have a pretty sustainable looking business model as do Rovers how would you assess the health of the league as it stands now in terms of maybe with respect to 10 years ago or 20 years ago what kind of yeah. what kind of health is the is, is the league in at the moment yeah look I think uh, I think the league and and the teams in the main are now being run along much more professional lines than was previously the case as you say, some of the teams you've mentioned there are, you know, very well run. I mean, Dundalk and Cork have sort of set the standard on the football pitch and off the pitch as well, in fairness to them, over the last number of years. You know, Waterford have had investment as well. Uh, there's some investment coming into Galway, as you've mentioned. 
there's investment gone into Shelburne with um, Andrew Doyle, a former Rovers director as well. So, look, I think, I think you know, the clubs themselves have sort of got their act together. There's obviously been a few exceptions to that. We can see the situation today at Bray uh, and at Lowen um, in recent months. Uh, hasn't been ideal. So, you know, there are there are probably issues that need to be addressed. But I think in the main, you know, the clubs have lifted their game over the last decade or so and the league is, uh, is run along much more professional lines. Uh, and again, I've got to give some credit to the, to the FAI, uh, the sort of licensing standards, whilst there are probably questions about Bray. Uh, but, but overall, I think, um, you know, the focus on um, professional administration uh, and organisation has, uh, has, has served the, the clubs well in the last few years. Ray, tell us a little bit about how much it costs to run a club like Shamrock Rovers on an annual basis. Um, look, we're we're now, I suppose, investing both in um, a football team, but also building a football club. So I think, you know, Rovers have had a football team since eighteen ninety nine, but really only in the in the last number of years have we really built out a proper football club. So you know, we we do spend probably more than any other club. I'd venture. Uh, in our youth structures and in our academies, uh, you know, we're building facilities at Roadstone, which has been, you know, well reported upon. Uh, we're spending a fair bit of money in um, in that uh, investment in infrastructure. Uh, we also invest, you know, quite a deal in our youth structures with coaches and uh, all the costs that go with running, you know, national teams in the 15s, 17s and 19s leagues. Um, and of course, we have to put on a show for the first team as well. So look, our... our you know, our, our budget's now beyond the €2 million Euro mark. Uh, about 50% of that's spent on the first team, probably a little bit more. Uh, and the balance is, is is invested in, you know, all other aspects of running um, the, the entire football organisation. Yeah, and obviously a hugely successful club over the years, you know, record number of league wins, record number of FAI Cup wins and all of that. And the fans are always impatient for success on the field for the first team. You know, great what's happening at grassroots level and at underage level and so on, but they want to see success on the pitch. Rovers haven't won the league since 2011, haven't won the Cup since, uh, what, 1987? Long, long time ago, even though they were the Cup specialists up to that point. So there's, there's pressure on, isn't there, to deliver on the field while also you know, building these uh, structures off the field? Uh, look, there is, you know, I mean, uh, I've heard Stephen Bradley, our coach, talk about it, uh, you know, quite a lot, that uh, if you're at Rovers, you have to expect pressure. Uh, we probably have got the most demanding fans uh, in the country and with good reason. Um, but I think, you know, the, the investment in the youth structures hasn't come at a cost to the first team. I mean, that's been additional money over and above what the club is pulling in from other sources, uh, which has been very much targeted into, um, you know, building a sustainable football club for the long term uh, and not having, you know, boom and bust sort of cycles, as we've seen um, over the years. So, look, you know, the demands are there, but I think there's also a fairly significant amount of buy-in from the fans to what we're doing as a club. So, you know, whilst uh, obviously if you're having a bad trot, um, you know, you can get a bit of backlash. Um, mm. um, you but you're a fan as well as, you of know, course part, I am. a part owner. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I, I mean, the club's fourth at the moment. They're a long way yep. off the, the top of the table uh, and they were fourth last season. I mean, you can't be happy with that. No, look, we're not. Uh, you know, look, I think uh, we, we, we do um, have a view, though, that, you know, what we're doing will yield results. Um, uh, and, and it isn't an overnight business football. You know, you do... You do have to invest and you do have to have a sort of longer term uh, focus on things. I think we've probably been a bit quick, um, you know, to, to um, 
get rid of managers, get rid of coaches over the years. Um, but we're very confident in the team we have uh, running the football side of things. You know, and we're confident that, you know, in time that will come uh, and uh, and and yield dividends. I mean, we're we're seeing it already. I mean, there's been a lot of talk in the last week or two about Gavin Bazunu, who's um, you know a young 16 year old kid uh, playing in our first team. You know, we've got uh, other young lads like uh, Brandon Kavanagh. Uh, Aaron Bulger, you know, two weeks ago we had a 16, a 17 and an 18 year old playing for the club. You know, that's sort of unprecedented. I don't think that's happened uh, uh, ever before in our history. So, you know, we we know what we're doing will yield results. Uh, we're united and connected as, a, as an organisation, as a board, as a football department and I think as a fans base as well. So uh, in fairness to Cork and Dundalk, I mean, they have lifted the bar in recent years, you know, the the, the levels that they're at, um, you know, we, we haven't been able to reach, but they are at levels that the League of Ireland hasn't seen. I mean, we've seen Dundalk's run um, in Europe over recent years. It's been phenomenal what they've achieved. Yeah. Um, and we've also seen Cork, you know, mix it in, in Europe as well. I mean, that was a very good, they didn't win, but there was a good performance against Leisure Warsaw. I mean, that team, Leisure Warsaw, beat Real Madrid in a Champions League group stage game only two years ago. So, you know, the levels that they're at are something we aspire to and there's nothing like competition to bring the best out in you. And, you know, I can assure you, Kieran, as a Rovers fan and all the other Rovers fans out there who might be listening that, you know, we are working harder than we've ever worked to put this club back on top. And you mentioned Gavin there, actually, and uh, reported interest from Liverpool. How, how real is that? Look, I, I think virtually every Premier League club and indeed uh, Scottish Premier League club is running the rule over Gavin, you know. Um, but again, Gavin is a product of what we've been talking about. I mean, he's been with the club since he was a very young boy, I think 11 or 12 years of age. Um, you know, he goes to Ashfield College. He trains with the first team. He does a school in the afternoon. Um, you know, he's still, he's, he, he'll be doing his leaving cert in 12 months' time. I mean, that's how young the fellow is. Um, but, but, you know, he is um, a good example of, you know, what we're trying to achieve at the football club. And from, from like Rovers, only one club, as you said, and obviously there's a couple of other clubs that got their act together. But what's the ideal structure from from a League of Ireland perspective to to have professional, sustainable clubs that can be competitive in Europe? In your view, what's the ideal number of clubs in a in a Premier League? Is it an all island league, or do we need to look a little bit further afield? And there's been talk of North Atlantic leagues and stuff like that. What would you like to see? Um, look, I think I think the current model is probably the right one, Mick. I mean, there was a bit of controversy um, when we went from a 12-team Premier League to a 10-team Premier League. But I think, you know, a 10-team Premier League is probably the right, you know, outcome um, uh, where you play each team home and away, you know, twice. So for us, you know, having big home games uh, against the likes of Bowes and Pats uh, who bring a decent sort of following and Cork and Dundalk uh, is a better um, model for us than having a 12-team league where you might only play those teams mm -hmm. once at home. You know, given that you play each team three times, but do the a clubs? Season. I know there's a process, Ray. Do the clubs need to, like an England Premier League style, take ownership of the league? Do you think in a yeah. in a joint venture with the FAI is that the like you've got you know a situation where the prize money is only you know under a couple of hundred grand or whatever yeah. it is at the moment? Like it's not you can't expect clubs to compete in Europe with that kind of prize money. Is there a sense that the the top ten clubs need to yeah. seize ownership of the of, of their own destiny? Yeah, look, there is a there is a clubs association, Mick, that works, you know, together collectively, and that's only a recent uh, initiative as well. It's only a couple of years old. Uh, it'd be fair to say, you know, going back uh, earlier than that, uh, there was a tendency for clubs to kind of run their own race, and uh, you know, to be a bit of infighting going on between clubs as well. You know, 
there's a now a much more harmonious uh, association that works together collectively and indeed works with the FAI as well. And the FAI, you know, are floating models with the clubs around the clubs having a much more active role in running the league itself. So that's something Rovers welcomes and uh, Noel Byrne, our company secretary, club secretary, is uh, leading the charge in that uh, in relation to that uh, and doing so, you know, with the cooperation of the FEI. So, look, you know, I think uh, the issue of prize money and TV broadcasting sort of monies has been a bugbear for clubs for, for many years. Uh, I think that will be addressed. I mean, the, the FEI has probably been hampered to a large extent by the, uh, the debts incurred with the Aviva Stadium, but... I think that's under control. We're getting to a situation where we'll, um, you know, be clear of those debts as a as a football code in a number of years, and I think then you'll see much more um, investment being available to the clubs from the FEI. So you know, we clearly welcome that, and we're going to need to have that to be able to compete with the European uh, leagues, no question. And European money, obviously, crucial as well in terms of business planning. Like you look at Cork on getting eight hundred thousand euro, I think, which is you know four or five times what you get for winning the league. For a first round of Champions League, is is that factored into the the business planning in terms of generating the, the millions that come from from persistent, consistent European appearances? Yeah, look for a club like Rovers. I mean, it's essential that we are in European um, football. You know, the uh, from a revenue point of view, it's clearly a significant component of our revenues. But but that said, it'll be only about fifteen or twenty percent of our revenue base over the last number of years. Obviously, if you get to the scale of Dundalk, where was it two years ago? I think they grossed seven, about seven million, you know, and they were a game away from twenty odd million by being in the Champions League group stages. In fact, Leisure Warsaw sort of um, knocked them out of that phase. So, look, that sort of money would, um, uh, you know, completely overhaul uh, the way we could run our business. But we're not budgeting for that clearly. Sure. Um, but look, that might be something that you know, it's it's an aim, it's an objective, it's a it's an aspiration, I suppose, that we might be able to get to that level in the next decade or so. I think, uh, you know, all all Irish clubs probably should be aiming for that. Uh, but for Rovers, look, it, it is essential we get into Europe. Um, as I say, the revenue is important. It's important for the fans. Uh, and you've got great occasions like this evening where, um, you know, AOK Stockholm will be in town. Over the years, we've had some amazing teams play in European competitions in Tala. You know, Juventus with Del Piero. We had uh, Tottenham Hotspur, Harry Kane's first goal for Spurs. was actually against Rovers in that match. And Ronaldo um, made his debut for Real Madrid. And Ronaldo, yeah, yeah, in a friendly, friendly game. <laughs> Indeed, that's right, Kieran. yes. Uh, and we'll Benzema, have to get him back. And Benzema <laughs> as well, yes. <laughs> but we'll have to draw Juventus in the Champions League and uh, we'll have him back. Well, you never know. Uh, can I just ask you, Ray, just, you know, a lot of people out there, they, they think of the League of Ireland, and some of them are soccer fans and some of them aren't, but they think of the League of Ireland and it just has such a, a bad image in their minds. And the crowds, I mean, Pat Fenlon, I remember a few years ago, used to lament the fact that he couldn't get two or 3,000 people on a regular basis to go to games. He wasn't talking about Rovers, he was talking about all clubs. Why can't clubs get two or 3,000 people locally to go to games on a regular basis? And that's probably all you would need to make the model sustainable uh, into the long term. Um, but people would rather they'd, they'd rather watch a lower league match in England on TV than uh, get up and go to a League of Ireland game. And facilities probably haven't helped either. Yeah, look, it's a real conundrum, Kieran. And you know, for me, sort of living in Sydney as I've done for the last thirty odd years, sometimes when you look at the thing from outside, it's even more uh, hard to fathom. You know, because the the quality of the product is very good, um, uh, and. You know, it is. It is. Uh, it's a. It's a real challenge to get people uh, along to the games, as you say. But look, I think you have to fight for every for every fan. You know, uh, you know what we're doing at Rover certainly is. Uh, you know, we do a hell of a lot of work around marketing 
to young people in particular. We've we've probably lost the generation, you know, of of the the thirty year olds and beyond. Uh, you know, if you go to a Rovers game, you see lots of young kids and you see quite a few old stalwarts from the hoops. But we pro- probably lost that generation when we were on the road in those twenty odd years after '87. Uh, but we, we it, it is um, encouraging, I think, to see the amount of younger fans who are now coming along to the club uh, and the community efforts that we are, um, you know, going to uh, bringing young football clubs along to to watch the the, the games uh, and marketing to younger kids through the junior hoops program and what have you is definitely yielding dividends, you know. And, and look, we need a Rovers. Well, for us, we need to be successful as well. I think the Rovers fans do tend to come out of the woodwork when we're doing well. Um, so, you know, yeah, that, it's, that, it's true. I mean, at the RDS, the first game in the RDS, 22,000 people were there for Rovers versus St. Pat's. Brian Kerr was managing the St. Pat's team at the time. Unfortunately, it was nil all draw. It was a dreadful <laughs> game. I, I actually came back from Australia and was at that match and it was, uh, it was dire, I think. I think the second game we got about six thousand, so um, you know we we sort of yeah. lost sixty percent. Ray, if there was fans. one thing you could change about the League of Ireland, uh, what would it be? Uh, if there was one thing I could change, um, look, I, I suppose it is fans, it's attendances. Um, um, you know that that would, uh, I think, enhance the product even more. You know. Um, uh, but if you look at, as I say, the quality of the football and the quality of the players is very strong. You look at the Ireland national team today and the majority of those players spend quite a number of years in the League of Ireland. Now, that's only something that's emerged probably in the last five or so years. Uh, and that will that will actually uh, become even more pronounced over coming years because of the investments that are going into um, the youth systems and the fact that, you know, more and more young boys are staying at home um, fin- finishing their school in in Ireland, uh, and then going on to playing football in the League of Ireland before they go to the UK. So um, you know, look, I think if we could if we could get bigger crowds along, I think there is a you know if clubs properly market the game, we've seen what Cork have done. Their crowds have been very good. We've seen fans return at Waterford. Obviously, Dundalk are getting decent crowds these days compared to what they were getting. There's a good fan base in places like Sligo, and you know there's a decent fan base here in Dublin as well, which we. You know, but we need we need to work for every fan. That's the that's the bottom line, Kieran. What does success look like for you? I suppose over the next three years, from a Rovers perspective, on and off the pitch. Hmm. Uh, well, success uh, is is a successful first team, Mick. I mean, we need to be winning trophies. Uh, we haven't done so for the last couple of years. Uh, I would particularly love to see us win the cup again, <laughs> given that it's been uh, thirty odd years Hallelujah since we last won it. <laughs> Hallelujah to that. Hopefully, this year might be our year. You know, we say that every year. Um, but you know, well, a well-supported club in Tala. Uh, I think we've made huge strides in the last few years. I mean, if you asked me two or three years ago when we were putting the plan together, um, you know, if if we were where we are today, would I be happy? I would. I'd have bitten your hand off. You know, we have uh, the facilities up and running with the support of Roadstone um, at the Roadstone Academy. Uh, we have excellent facilities now at Tala Stadium, with the third stand being built with the support of the um, South Dublin County Council. Um, and, you know, we are investing in our youth structures. I mean, Rovers are doing very well at 19s, 17s and 15s levels. I think we're on top of all of those leagues. We have Irish internationals at every age category and age group. And we are already seeing those players coming through into our first team. So, you know, I think professionally and organisationally, we're probably stronger than we've been. Um, in football terms, I think whilst we're not winning leagues, but I think as a football club, not a football team, we're probably stronger than we've ever been. 
Um, and I think we've broadened our reach into the corporate community as well, you know, with the uh, great work that Brendan's doing as our CEO. You know, we've reached out to uh, corporates and we're getting great support for various initiatives on that front as well. And finally, Ray, I have to ask you for a prediction for tonight's game and indeed over the two legs. A tough, tough draw getting Stockholm and they're, they're going to be serious opposition. They are indeed. Look, they're they're actually top of the Swedish Premier League as we speak. So they've got a summer a summer season as we do here in Ireland. So look, we're we're obviously underdogs, but I think our Irish teams have shown in recent years that there's nothing to be scared of in Europe. So I'm hoping that we keep the tie alive, Kieran. So if we could sneak a result tonight, uh, even a draw, and take the uh, tie uh, back to Stockholm. Uh, that'd be uh, that'd be a good result for us. Make some interesting insights there from Ray Wilson. We should just say for listeners that was recorded last week, uh, the Hoops play the second leg of that fixture in Stockholm on Thursday of this week, uh, July 19th. Um, they're down by a goal. Unfortunately, they lost 1-0 in Tala. So uh, I suppose the tie is still, you know, theoretically uh, alive, Mick, but uh, Rovers really up against it. Yeah, you'd be taking a miracle now to get a result out there. I think it had gone nil all. You might have given them some hope to get a, a one all away or something like that and, and, and sneak through, but it looks like a huge ass to go out and beat a team with that kind of support base and that kind of money behind them. And I know we're talking about the money with, with, with Ray earlier on. It's The European money is so important to clubs like Yeah, it's Rover. what, about 280 grand around, roughly speaking? Yeah, when you compare it to, I think it was 120,000 euro prize money for the League of Ireland, it just puts it in perspective. Mm. And Cork, I think, what was it 800,000 euro they got for the Legia Warsaw tie? So, you know, it just shows you the importance of it. But I, I, I think, look, the league is at an interesting crossroads. You know, um, it's always been a kind of a, a poor relation and, and a bit of a... Uh, there's always this cloud of negativity around the League of Ireland and yet it has this very passionate hardcore fan base and there's always been talk of well what's the best structure for the league and I think this process they're going through with the FAI around you know some kind of part of co-ownership let the clubs take control the clubs seem to be better run I think here on than they were in the past well now since that interview took place with Ray um, we've had SIP2 on behalf of the players of Ray Wanderers uh, giving notice to the club of strike action because the players haven't been paid since May. And just today, uh, SIP2 also made a, issued a release stating that they were going to take similar action on behalf of uh, players at Limerick because, uh, similarly, they haven't been paid. And the FEI has decided to take sanctions against both clubs and both of them are, are going to be prevented from registering any more players this season. Yeah, but I think I, I think there's an onus on the FAI and, and, and the soccer world in, in this country to ensure the clubs are properly run and governed correctly. And I think, you know, we have this boom-bust scenario where people go in, some of them are coming in for property reasons, some are coming in for other reasons, some of them don't have the money. Uh, and this kind of thing of living hand-to-mouth I don't think is, is, is acceptable anymore. I think what Rovers have, uh, and, and Cork to some degree, is that kind of part fan-owned thing um, and it seems to be a model that works where you've got fan ownership and uh, people like like Ray Wilson and others who come in and invest in the club I think that isn't a bad model and I think what Rovers have done in fairness even though it hasn't translated to success in the pitch yet is that sustainable club structure with yeah. underage and you know a really good conveyor belt of talent coming through Let's talk about that academy structure because you played League of Ireland you played for uh, Rovers so you must have been a young boy uh, with ambitions to be a professional soccer player would this kind of academy have appealed to you? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I think it's a. I think it's a brilliant um, uh, venture. I think when we were growing up, we we you know we played for a Stellamaris or a Home Farm or a Belvedere, and they were the the. Just nurse- take us on your journey. So I I I played with um, Joe 
boys in, in Sally Noggin and then Stella Maris after that and uh, we would have been winning All-Irelands and that kind of thing at under 15 level our team would have had likes of Stephen Carr Trevor Malloy Stuart Burns we had a pretty good Simon Webb we, we had a pretty good underage team and Terry Orta were very strong in our age group what would have happened traditionally was scouts would come along to those matches and they would cherry pick the best couple of lads and a lot of them would then go off to England on trials uh, and sign contracts. Some of them would be amateur with a few to professional contracts after that. When you get to 17, you kind of come to another crossroads where guys go and join League of Ireland clubs or they give up. What you often found was that there's, you know, we, we did analysis of it in, in our own company. I think it's less than 5% of players that go to England get a second contract and that's not even a second contract with the club that they're with it's just a second contract so you've 19 out of 20 fellas coming home some of them are broken up some of them are just falling out of love with the game so I think having a a professional structure with really good underage with Cork and Rovers and the other clubs that are there that are really putting a lot of time and money into these things I think it's fantastic fellas can mature you know they don't get that homesickness thing that they you get um, and they can play professional sport at 17, 18 years of age uh, then if they're sold on the club gets money and we had this horrendous scenario in, in, in Dublin where you know you'd agents coming in or scouts coming in they'd pick up a fella you know Stella Maris or Home Farm would get buttons for him and you know he gets sold that on for happen so much now because uh, UEFA yeah. or FIFA have rules which govern player development and so on and, and clubs that have been involved in player development on the way up are entitled to compensation fees. And, and to be fair, that's, that has that has changed. Um, but I, I, I think you had this kind of de facto feeder club scenario where, um, you know, you'd, you'd clubs would feed into Joey's, would feed into Bray, as a club you've mentioned there, and other other clubs. And then, you obviously, UCD is a bit of a misnomer because they're kind of got their own thing going on. But um, I, I think what's happening now is, is much, much better. I think, unfortunately, the same with the provincial structure in rugby and the clubs. I think something has to give. And what you'll probably find is that the, the old... DDSL type clubs are probably going yeah the schoolboy clubs will probably struggle um, to keep the kids I think a lot of the kids will move on at 10, 11, 12 so if if you're out there and your kid is a talented young player and he's playing for his local club there comes a time when 10, 11, 12 do you send him to a Shamrock Rovers where he's going to have to train three, four nights a week or mornings Mm. a week whatever it is and then he gets into almost like a semi-professional system and we mentioned Damien Duff and he's uh, coaching one of the underage teams uh, for Shamrock Rovers and apparently huge interest at at that age level uh, to be involved with that Shamrock Rovers team because it's Damien Duff who's a a recent legend if you like in Irish soccer yeah and he's he's a passionate soccer guy so he's he's in it for, for all the right reasons he's in it because he loves football um, and they're bringing through brilliant kids and I've seen the facilities up in, in, in Cement Roadstone and I've seen the training and the standard is unbelievable it's unrecognisable from when we were playing 20-30 years ago um, and and it, what they're doing is they're, they're giving kids they're getting them into an academy system giving them the best training um, yes it's going to have an impact on kind of local soccer clubs who are just probably going to end up feeding into these into these what are going to become super schoolboy clubs which will then feed into the, the professional professional setup but Rovers you can see it's bearing fruit already um, they're producing players for the first team and there's got the 16 year old keeper as well and, and a couple of others that have come through the ranks so I think their business model will be you know produce young players get them into the first team and if they sell on to a professional club in the UK they're probably going to get three, four, five hundred thousand and that then sustains the whole development and the, and the whole system again mm. So are you confident it'll work? I, for Rovers, I, 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 I think it is. I think they're probably in generation two of this thing. You know, I, I think obviously they made their money out of Europe and then the money went and now they're back again. And I think it's a very sustainable business model. I think, you know, if they had a bit more money, they could maybe get a bit more success. I think 
you need that the elite team to be winning um, and that's the next step for overs is that the, the first team starts winning I think that structure is the best structure I think there's always going to be a bit of blood in the carpet um, but I do think that you have Rovers, Cork Dundalk you know but you need a sustainable league and that's the problem is that we have these three really well run clubs and then you've got clubs like Bray and, and Limerick who don't pay their players and SIP2 and all this kind of stuff stepping in and it's just a throwback to the bad old days yeah. Okay. All right. Well, listen, we wish Ray Wilson and Shamrock Rovers all the best with that venture. Uh, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to our guest, Ray Wilson, and to Dan O'Neill of Teneo PSG for research. Jennifer Ryan produced the show with Declan Conlon as sound engineer. Don't forget you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock. And I'm Mick O'Keefe. Until next time, take care. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.